and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by writer Scott Beauchamp for the first in a series on horror movies. I was impressed with an essay in Modern Age, which is, I suppose, not that surprising. It's a good journal, but this one is very rare because it deals with the questions of science, nihilism, and faith in horror storytelling, both on the screen and in print. And this struck me as a perfect addition, or perhaps a more theoretical, more insightful companion to some of the work we've been doing at the ACF podcasts on Hitchcock horrors and on the horrors of the 70s and the 80s that were essentially social stories like Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street. First of all, Mr. Beauchamp, thank you for joining me. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Please introduce yourself for our audience, and then let's get to talking a bit about your essay. Sure. Well, I'm a writer, and I live in Maine, and I write mostly cultural criticism, but I've also been known to write about defense subjects as well. I do have a military background as well, so that's all there is to me. The essay that I wrote for Modern Age is about the horror fiction of Russell Kirk. Russell Kirk's fiction tends to be overshadowed by his nonfiction, and rightfully so. I mean, it's fun and it's solid horror that he writes, but it doesn't really compare to his nonfiction. I was especially struck in your essay when you talk about uh, Kirk's own interest in figuring out how to find an opening for existential questions in what is otherwise our very successful, very powerful liberal way of life, that he turns to the horror for one thing. It's about the troubles of this world and the questions of being human becoming personal all of a sudden rather than being reduced to abstractions or conflated to systems. If it's personal, if it's the problem of one person, what are you going to do then? You can no longer reduce things to abstractions or to numbers, and you can no longer think of success in abstract terms either. Whether human beings really are human and what that means, whether they live in a providential world or perhaps in a chaotic world, whether the universe has any interest in human beings or any special place for them or is utterly indifferent, not to say cruel, these things all of a sudden focus and drama would seem to be the proper place for that storytelling because all general or universal questions show up as particular as the problem of one character or a small set of characters in one particular situation. And Kirk's, you you discover in his horror this set of alternatives. How are we to think about horror? What is it that actually horrifies us? Is it that we have discovered that we're nothing but matter in motion? That it's not special being human? That our humanity is merely a delusion? Is it a nihilistic kind of realization? Or on the other hand, as you point out in the case of Kirk, that uh, we are becoming aware again in shocking ways that there is a fundamental conflict between our awareness of soul and our bodily condition and the world we inhabit. There is something metaphysically dangerous about being human and it could turn into horrifying things given the wrong circumstances or the wrong decision. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think Kirk's horror, and I would say most horror, hinges on that question. And what you call abstraction, Kirk would phrase it as, are we confined to a sort of claustrophobic materialism? Or is there a transcendent or vertical reality that we some occasionally have access to or that will sort of infect our sort of mundane day-to-day reality? In the essay, my way into that is this anecdote 
about Jung and Freud having an argument about the source of these mysterious knocks on a wall. And of course, Freud, being arch-materialist, says, of course, there's some sort of explanation for it. Jung says, yes, the explanation is supernatural, you know, and, and so and I think that's a question Kirk's horror takes a position on. In the essay, I take the position, and, and maybe I, I overstated a little bit, I overstated it in order to make a specific point, and that's that so much of horror must take a position on this, whether or not it does so intentionally. So I would say that two types of horrors that we are confronted with, the horror of a large, mysterious universe in which we play a very central metaphysical role in, and all the, the responsibility that goes along with that as well as a reorientation of our own powers as a human and our responsibilities towards the universe and the place we inhabit in the universe, or the sort of disgusting claustrophobia of being trapped in a materialist world. Body horror or you know, even slasher films would probably fit more into that category. Yeah, so the horror movie seems to focus the question of humanity by bringing up the issue of mortality. It's the thing that has got to be accounted for somehow. Our ideas of who we are can't really deal with the fact that we're nevertheless mortal. If we're mortal, we can't be as important as we ever think we are, and we can't be as in control of ourselves as we usually think we are. We are not the products of our own choices, and we are not under full rational or scientific control, in fact. And the violence of the horror seems to bear a relationship to the disappearance of faith and of communities of faith. You can get rid, it would seem, of God's providence. You could get rid of faith in Jesus Christ. You can't, however, get rid of God's wrath. You couldn't get rid of hell, even if you banished heaven. So metaphysical questions and the religious questions of the soul and its ultimate destiny show up in this incredibly violent way. Yeah, I, that's right. And I think moving closer towards The Exorcist, the author who wrote the book that the movie is based on, as well as the screenplay, William Peter Blatty, said he didn't think that The Exorcist was all that horrific because the presence of the devil suggests the presence of God. The presence of demons suggests the presence of angels. So there's this larger cosmic balance that happens when you admit the supernatural into your worldview. Yeah, that's a very good point. And it seems like this is for storytelling the entryway. It's easier to bring up the question of heaven and hell by looking first at hell. It is easier to think about salvation and damnation if you start from an urgent fear of damnation. Hell swallowing you up. And this itself is something worth wondering about. How did literature turn in this direction? How come this seems the more popular option? But there it is. It's undeniable and such movies are still made. This is not merely a cultural or historical artifact. It seems to be a living issue in our storytelling because it's a living issue in our society. And The Exorcist has a lot to show in details and characterization throughout the movie about this world we inhabit, which we think is primarily the result of our choices and to be placed under control by the powers that we get primarily from science. So the beginning of the movie suggests that there was an ancient world before that was different. That's where the demon image comes from. But then there is this other world we live in now where whatever we might think of the drama of humanity in this universe is actually reduced to movie making. It's reduced to artists, right? 
right right we see these guys they're the ones who are supposed to make humanity still seem important but of course compared to the issue revealed in the archaeological dig in iraq this stuff that they do a social drama about the hippies protesting injustice and on the other hand the parties of the artists themselves they seem completely vacuous and silly that's absolutely right and i think that scene is the beginning of the exorcist is so important the setting the tone for the rest of the film when they discover the pizazu statue and especially when the clock stops you get a sense that we've stepped out of historical time as we might think we understand it and into a struggle that supersedes time And then there's a sort of jarring transition to not just a protest on a college campus. You know, this is the early to mid-70s, so this becomes almost cliche at this point even. But it's a staged protest, right? It's for a film. So the artifice has layers to it. And you go from something that's ancient and is fundamental to reality itself, these layers of artifice. and, And it's quite jarring and quite effective, I think. Yeah, very well put. We have come to think this is what we get. And what is it that we're supposed to have here? How is this the alternative to the ancient problem of demons? Well, it's social justice, and that means progress. These people are play-acting progress. Maybe they don't really believe in it anymore, but they are play-acting it. And that would mean that human beings have it in their power to continuously improve humanity And of course, the core of the joke is trying to think of the children. They have to still get to school in the film they're shooting. The hippies are, in a hilarious turn of events, boycotting a school, which is completely innocuous, completely foolish, completely besides whatever point they may have thought about in terms of anti-war protesting or what have you. And this sets up this conflict that's often, or perhaps always, the core of horror, the conflict between the most ancient things and the most modern things, and which are in fact more powerful and which give a better account of our situation and its predicament. And this gradually begins to unfold as the story of a girl, Reagan, who turns out to be possessed, Her mother, a blithe atheist, wants to take her to more and more doctors and she grows angrier and more scared as things get worse and worse without learning anything about what's happening. And we run into this situation where a problem that's posed poetically, what's happening to this girl in the story, is also a way of revealing how a social attitude to kids and perhaps to society as such is turning from moral questions to therapeutic questions. I think that's it. I think the word therapeutic is important here. I think this film is quite a rebuke to the therapeutic society Besides the humbling that happens, these scientists, the best minds in their field, you assume that Reagan's mother, who's a rich and famous actress, has access to the best doctors. They're at a loss completely as to what's going on with this girl. And so she's forced to turn to something more ancient and, as the film implies, something more real. And I think what happens in this rebuke of the therapeutic is you're faced with the decision. Okay, so this isn't something that you can treat. It's only something you can confront, that you can fight. And this gets, I think, to the heart of the problem of evil itself. Understanding evil doesn't make it go away. So many things in the therapeutic society, you know, the therapeutic language that we use is to, well, if we can understand something, if we can find a way to articulate the problem perfectly, the problem just dissolves, right? This isn't the case with the kind of evil that's dealt with in The Exorcist. This is the kind of evil that can only be confronted by representatives of a power greater than the evil itself. 
which is completely alien, I'm sure, to the, the paid protest actors on the campus towards the beginning of the film. Yeah, and bringing up this question, how is it possible to be evil, suggests that being human doesn't mean being fully in control of yourself. And since evil is tied up with immense suffering and death, it also points out that you cannot be the product of your own choices because nobody would choose this. And it shows that being human is to some extent being trapped within certain limits that are simply impossible to escape. Everybody at some point or another will face evil. Everybody must eventually face his mortality. There is no scientific cure for this because scientific power just doesn't reach that far into human nature. And on the other hand, beyond scientific power, you have a kind of scientific poetry that persuades you you could fix everything, which is what animates progress. You can defer any existential question by saying, well, eventually they'll know the answer to this. What's the problem with this child? Well, eventually they'll figure it out scientifically. Of course, it's sort of saying, let's first wait out our lives and die, and then eventually there will be an answer. But uh, when the question is existentially urgent, you can't do that. You can't come up with this poetry in which science eventually conquers everything, eventually solves every problem, and delivers to us a new paradise. So in the movie you see the drama mount, things get uglier and uglier and scarier and scarier, because more and more it's becoming clear that the people who are supposed to have the answers don't have any answers. Right. And even initially, the priest that she talks to doesn't have answers himself. He's sort of a doubting priest. And when I watched the film, I always thought that if there's any character we're meant to put ourselves in or identify with, then it is Father Karras. It is the doubtful priest who really wants to help, but he is part of the therapeutic world. He is a psychiatrist himself, and he has trouble believing that what he's seeing is actually real. So it's interesting that he straddles both worlds, and I think it makes for an easier entry into this completely theological or completely religious second half of the movie. Yeah, the poetry and the storytelling work out well. You don't have to be a Catholic or even a Christian to take this seriously. All you have to confront is the fact that as evil becomes revealed, science becomes impotent. And this is something that anybody could verify for himself, and all of America had to go through when 9-11 happened. There, all the instruments of progress turned out to be used against humanity. Right, right. Friedkin himself is not Catholic. He's an agnostic Jew. So I think you're right. You don't need to have a Catholic background to understand or appreciate this film. One assumes that part of the point of the film is to make you confront the problem of soul and evil. Can you really be yourself when you're confronted with evil? Is there anything in you that could stay human or that could vouchsafe for your humanity, however much it itself is in need of greater help? And one assumes that the success of the story has a lot to do with that. People ask themselves exactly this question, and the film doesn't just describe in certain ways, as we've pointed out about progressive students or social justice or the quest for progress, it doesn't just describe the sociology of America. It also points out psychologically, lots of people are asking these questions of themselves, and this is a very poignant, very shocking way to get them to break through their fears and face the question directly. Yeah, I think part of what allows Friedkin to do that is that the film itself is filmed almost as if it's a documentary in some sense, right? It's gritty, it's very realistic. You can tell that he began with a story that was supposedly true about an actual exorcism that took place. A young boy who lived in Maryland and the um, exorcism took place in St. Louis. 
William Peter Blatty wrote his screenplay based on that story. And I think that Friedkin, he didn't start off with evil as a symbol, right? And then sort of build the movie around that. He took the evil literally, which is important because I think that is existentially how we experience evil. We don't experience evil as an abstraction or a symbol. When we experience it in our daily lives, it's very real. It's a very visceral thing. And so I think that accounts for a lot of the film's success. Yeah, and it suggests that maybe horror is what these poets end up thinking is necessary to attract people's attention to something that is very, very important, as though we are otherwise sort of alienated from our own experience, precisely because we tend to think, well, you should see a doctor about this, some scientist will solve your problem. Well, some problems can be solved medically and some can't, and telling the difference is harder and harder, and that seems to be what's unfolding throughout the story. Yeah, that's right. And there's a um, film that was recently released, I believe it was last year, which I like to think of as almost a sequel to The Exorcist. And that was um, William Friedkin's The Devil and the Father of Mort. And that's on Netflix. In the film, and it is a documentary, and which is why I think it's such a great companion piece to The Exorcist. And in The Devil and Father of Mort, he, William Friedkin, goes to Italy and talks to the lead exorcist for the Diocese of Rome very old and obviously personally holy man. And he films an actual exorcism. During the course of the film, he also interviews neurologists, brain surgeons, and he sort of pushes them with these questions that get them to the limits of their own beliefs. And I think they're very good interviews. And they're very, these doctors are very honest about the limits of science and what it can do to help people. And they sort of admit at the end of the day, we could do surgery, we could do that, but our techniques are, are limited. And this 90-year-old Italian priest, in many ways, is more successful at helping people confront very real and profound problems in their lives than brain surgeons at some of the, the finest institutions in America. And I, and I think there's something humbling about that. There should be something humbling about that to, to all of us. Yeah, this seems to be why we have horror stories to remind us that our scientific progress and its transformation of our society nevertheless is limited. And it's always trying to figure out from limits as we experience them scientifically and socially now to limits that might just be permanent. What is it that perhaps we're never going to solve? Like, of course, above all, mortality, personal extinction. Right. And to take it back to Kirk, I think Kirk would understand this as you know, an axis of a horizontal axis and a vertical axis. Science can do so much along this horizontal axis of our lives, very real measurable material improvements in our lives. And that's very important as well. But we ignore the vertical or existential or transcendental or whatever term you want to use to describe it aspect of our lives um, to a, a very, very sad, I think, detriment. Yeah, you could say further that horror seems to suggest that you have to give account of what makes human beings human. The problem with our science is that, as we see in The Exorcist, Doctors say, well, there's a problem in this part of you, or there's a problem with this process that goes on in your body, or we hope that that's where the problem is, and you can try to deal with that. But that suggests that there is no problem with you as such, or with who you are, if there is any you to you. There's never any account of who you are, or what keeps you together as a human being, rather than as a series of parts. Now, in normal times, everybody recognizes what it's like to be human, and we just go along, because we recognize it in each other, too. Let crisis, let tragedy befall man, and all of a sudden it's not obvious anymore. 
let somebody go crazy and it's not clear anymore is that person still human and in what sense what are your duties to such a person all of a sudden whether you're human or not at all or what makes for humanity and how serious humanity is becomes an urgent question yeah that's a very important part of the film and actually at one point in the film father Marin, who's the older priest is explaining to father Karras, the younger priest why the devil would possess a little girl like what's the significance of this and he says i think the point is to make us despair and to see ourselves as animal and ugly and to make us reject the possibility that god could love us so I think that goes back to what you're saying about recognizing the human. There's in sort of materialistic lens of looking at ourselves, it's very reductive, right? We, we do see, we have to see ourselves as an animal in this certain context in order to rationally have some sort of like technological progress as far as like medicine or whatever it goes. But we ourselves, our being is so much more than that. And that's actually the motive of the devil in the movie is to make us think that we're not more than that, that we are just animals. And I think the joke, though, is that by his very presence, he sort of negates that. <laughs> yeah. The fact that we experience horror suggests that we have a very strong belief in the fact that we are, in fact, human. But we have to face up to the fact that when you see the ways in which the human body can be violated or destroyed... All of a sudden, you have to ask yourself, do you really believe that is a human being a person, or is it just matter in motion? And this has to do with how we deal with suffering, which again brings us back to the question of medicine and science. If suffering is primarily something that you've got to cure, there's suffering and you got to make it go away. You have to relieve suffering and you have to prevent its reoccurrence. This is how we ended up with a therapeutic society. If that is the essential task of society... You could say if you could reduce political science to medicine, then it would mean that there's no, nothing more to be said about the fact that we are mortal. You can alleviate pain, but what are you going to do about death? If you nevertheless die, how do you understand yourself anymore? What about you makes sense in light of death? What about you makes you able to deal with the knowledge of your own mortality and with the knowledge of the mortality of others? Can you even accept that other people are human when they are suffering or dying? Or do you have to look away from them, ignore them, or indeed get rid of them? Yeah, I think that question of death is the question that separates materialistic horror from a more transcendental horror. I think materialistic horror would say, uh, yeah, death death is it. That's, that's it. There are no more questions. And that in and of itself is the horror. We are just animals. And that is the horror. And I think the horror of the transcendental would say no. But in that no comes a new set of responsibilities. If you are more than an animal, if you are more than just a lump of cells, then it's incumbent upon you to play some larger role in this new order that you're acknowledging. And that also can be terrifying in its own way. Yes, and that brings us again to what you so astutely noticed about the girl. You're a child. Well, this child it matters because nature and grace come together there. That is another human being. The fact that we can recognize our duties towards somebody else who cannot enforce them on us. Are you going to take care of children or not? If you are, you have to believe in their humanity, and therefore you have to believe in humanity as such. And it's, of course, to an extent, a way of dealing with death, because there will be a next generation. But in another sense, it means taking on a whole new set of fears, because you, you are afraid of what might come to pass and what might happen to your child. 
the importance of children, this combination of our natural reproduction, and on the other hand, the hoping for grace, hoping that divine providence will take care of what is beyond our own powers, this would seem to be the crucial thing. Because otherwise, if you're faced with your mortality and you say, yeah, I'm the only me I know and I'm going to die, then you don't really have duties towards anybody else. Because the only really important thing is that you will face extinction and everything you know about being will be extinct with you. Right. And that's also, I think, a very important theme in the film is neglected duty. Reagan, she has an absent father. And I think you could almost over-psychologize that, but I think the absent father is significant. And Father Karras himself feels as if he's failed as a son in duties to his mother. So really, there's this breakdown of nuclear and extended families that wouldn't necessarily matter in a materialistic horror film, right? It, it would be almost accepted, the reality of it, really have any significance beyond whatever sort of emotional pain you might suffer. But in this, it has quite a bit more significance. I can't help but think about the absence of the father in The Exorcist and the absence of God generally in the first half of the film. I think there's a striking parallel, and I think that Friedkin makes a point of showing you there's no religious paraphernalia in the home. There's nothing to indicate this family or the individuals, with an emphasis on individuals who constitute this family, have really considered these sort of deeper existential questions or confronted them in any way, which is, of course, another failure of duty. Yeah. It's probably the right way to think about what's happening to these characters, that a lot of their spiritual crisis depends on failures of family, which again are failures of love and of loving care that make people feel more and more alone, take more and more responsibility, as it were, upon their shoulders in their loneliness, while making them less and less able to deal with the responsibilities of being human. And so you see this whole version of individualism placed in crisis and ends up with misery and death all around because people cannot hold together. There is an absence of faith and not just in Christian terms, but also in terms of family and the various other social institutions we see in the movie. In a way, what's revealed as evil is revealed is how frail people are. And they're as frail as that because they're very, very alone. There's nobody to count on or to turn to. Right. That loneliness, the loneliness of the individuals who are trying to constitute this very frail, I mean, it's, you could hardly say it's a family. It's a mother and daughter living with hired help. I think that that loneliness is reflected in a cosmic sense as well. So William Friedkin somehow got a hold of all the details and plot points he needed to put together this story that gradually reveals how frail we are when we have to face evil, how much our loneliness, which is somehow tied up with our therapeutic society and our idea that we can take control of our lives, define ourselves by our powers and our choices, and leave it at that as though we wouldn't still have to face our mortality and our relationships to each other and our duties to each other. And if the movie still has a certain power to scare people and to persuade them that, yeah, this is a recognizable America, this is a recognizable world where something terrifying might happen, the power of the movie comes from understanding what it means for a soul to face up to evil and how much that shocks our everyday assumptions and our usual way of dealing with things. And therefore, it opens up the possibility that we could take more seriously what we assume is providential in being human. 
is being human is special. It's not like any other piece of matter. It's not like any other mortal animal. Yeah, the reviews of The Exorcist when it first came out weren't all positive. And there was a, I believe it was John Lando writing in Rolling Stone, said that it was religious pornography. And a lot of people were disgusted by it. But I can't help and interpret the disgust of those critics as a failure to engage with this almost Rilkean imperative to change their lives. The film itself confronts us and asks us to live differently, and that's very difficult to accept. Yeah, it's not just a piece of entertainment, it's not just a scare, it's supposed to reveal what exactly attracts us to horror, and that is to say what we find so horrifying, the possibility that in fact we're a mere nothing a mere perishable accretion of matter, temporary by definition and meaningless. And of course, dealing with that would require, on the other hand, confronting why we think we do matter, that is to say that we are ensouled, not merely bodies. And this would seem to be one of the special abilities of horror as a genre, to conjure up this problem in a story, and nevertheless to drive it home, to make it really punch by characterizing human beings and our predicament, our loneliness, in a persuasive way i think that's absolutely right yeah well scott thank you for joining me i hope we have persuaded our audience that this is a movie worth watching again and worth pondering in a serious way and let's get to the thing for our next horror discussion thank you it's a pleasure to be on and i I can't wait to talk to you again all the best and we'll do this again soon bye bye yeah sounds good bye Mm -hmm.